You're listening to From the Inside Out, a podcast series from USA Learning Lab. International development is a complex process, and we don't always get it right. But here at USA Learning Lab, we believe that we all have a role in improving organizational effectiveness and ultimately achieving better development outcomes. Our goal for this series is to empower USAID staff and partners to change the way they work. So we're sharing research and practical tips on how you can collaborate, learn, and adapt to help USAID achieve better development outcomes. In this episode, we'll look at evidence from the business sector on the negative effects of over-collaboration. Next, we'll reflect on the way our teams collaborate. In our third segment, we'll talk about six strategies for strategic collaboration and what they look like at USAID. We're back in the studio this morning. Ian and Stacy are here with me on this very gray day in Washington, D.C. Uh, good morning, Ian and Stacy. Good morning. Good morning. So the title of this episode is Collaborate But Not Too Much. And in a common misconception about collaboration is that collaborating more means more meetings. And that's not actually the case. So I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on what that looks like. What does effective collaboration look like? And how do we safeguard ourselves against just committing our time to meetings that, that aren't actually helping us achieve our goals? In a piece in the January-February issue from 2016 in Harvard Business Review called Collaborative Overload, um, the authors talk about how we've kind of gone a little too far with collaboration. And they found that over the past two decades, the amount of time managers, employees spend engaged in collaborative activities has increased to almost 50%. So they're spending 50% of their time in some kind of collaborative activity. Too much collaboration can lead to burnout and decreased levels of employee engagement because they're, they're not feeling productive because they're always engaged with others and not really working on what they're supposed to be working on. Studies have shown that um, extra milers, those people who kind of go above and beyond their roles, can drive team performance more than other team members combined. But these people also tend to be the top collaborators, meaning that other people are frequently asking for their advice. So if someone is well-connected, everyone is going to them because they're seen as, as being that well-connected person, and then they're not able to um, do their own work. Um, research shows that collaborative work is also extremely lopsided. In most cases, 20 to 35% of value-added collaborations come from only 3 to 5% of employees. We can all think about those people on our team who, um, without a doubt, add lots of value to whatever subject matter we're working on. And so um, we really need to be careful that we're, we're balancing our expectations of them. Well, that's right, because they go on to say that as a result of that, those 3 to 5% of the top collaborators often score the lowest on engagement and career satisfaction because they're, they're burnt out, mm -hmm. because they're just feeling so drained. So things to think about with this is that it's important to distinguish between um, the types of collaborative resources, you know, informational, social, and personal, um, because personal resources, such as time and energy, are often the ones that are tapped the most. And so you have to think about what you're asking of that person when you're collaborating. Is it their personal time, or is it, or are you going to them because you don't know who to go to instead? And one interesting note that the authors made was that women especially have the default expectation um, from others to collaborate, and they tend to collaborate more than men. 
I think those are such important points, and uh, and I'm glad you brought out the gender disparity because I definitely see that in our environment. Um, I also think that what you were saying about thinking through what we want from individuals is really important. One of the tools that you guys used and that you've introduced to our shared work is the RACI tool. It's R-A-C-I, Responsible, what's the A? Accountable. Accountable, Consulted, and Informed. These are different roles within a collaboration. And um, I found it really useful to define who does what so that you're not in a situation where, where I think we've all been where there's a topic let's have a meeting, and then everybody's expected to come to every meeting. Uh, that's where I think we get meeting fatigue. Um, but being more strategic about saying, okay, if this person is just informed, we, only, we, can, we can do that fairly efficiently and maybe less frequently. If this person is responsible or accountable, these people need to more be more fully involved. Consultation, maybe that takes place in the meeting environment, but maybe that's just a 10-minute conversation on the side. So there are ways that we can be more strategic and efficient in our collaboration with a little bit of thought and with some creativity about what form that takes beyond the standard meeting. That's, that's exactly right. And I think one thing um, that they mentioned, uh, one thing that they did mention of ways to, you know, combat against this is to um, place decision-making power at um, lower levels to avoid unnecessary collaboration. So empower individuals to, to make a decision themselves and just go with it so that they don't have to bring in all of these people. Because we all know when you, when you bring in a lot of perspectives, you, kind of ge you generate a lot of ideas which can then lead to more work. It's a kind of a a negative byproduct, even though it is positive, because you come up with all these great things that you want to be able to do, but you may lose sight of your objective. Um, and one thing individuals can do is is to ask themselves, did something of value come out of this collaboration? And if not, what's another way I can do this without taxing someone's time? Um, you know, can I figure this out on my own before I have to go to others? And that feeds into the point about the decision making. Those are excellent points, Ian. And I want to go back to something else that you said about how sometimes the people who are the most c connected, everybody comes to them, and so they end up not having a lot of time. I find this to be true. Um, I want to talk about it on two levels. One is sort of in, you know, kind of the office work environment, and then the other is in working with partners in the field. But they're both related. I think in each instance, when we are trying to be inclusive, sometimes we end up sort of tokenizing the input of specific individuals or specific organizations and getting sort of lazy and defaulting to the same people. So people of color often um, have that experience in the workplace and, and talk about being tapped for every different committee because somebody has decided that in inclusion means that that we need somebody who looks this way on this committee and they're not thinking about those same people because, for instance, we have um, a not particularly inclusive or not particularly diverse workplace, those, those people are going to be bearing the brunt of this way that we're living inclusion. And so we need to think differently about how we include those perspectives without burning out those individuals. And then in, in the field, um, a similar kind of dynamic can emerge when we go repeatedly to a particular organization or a small set of organizations for 
the sort of quote-unquote local perspective because they're available to us, we have established relationships instead of looking more systemically and saying really what we need to do is expand our relationships with local organizations and, and local actors and, and get a range of local perspectives. So really being um, more uh, inclusive, more expansive in, in how we approach that conversation. Mm -hmm. One example that I thought we could talk about as well is the relationship that uh, our team, that's me and Ian working on the USAID Learn contract, has with USAID's CLA team in the Bureau of Policy Planning and Learning. So Stacy, I would describe that relationship really as co-creation because we co-design and co-implement activities, just like we're doing right now with this podcast. Right. And I'm interested from hearing from you, what are some of the benefits of this arrangement for you and the CLA team? Oh, sure. Well, you guys, uh, first of all, you're much bigger than we are. <laughs> so just, uh, you know, on pure numbers, you're a real force multiplier for us. Um, but second, it's, it's that piece about not having all of the expertise uh, in one person or a small number of people, but really being able to be robust in our approach to learning about international development and being able to pool the various things that we know. So for instance, Amy, if I were trying to produce a podcast, it would never get produced. But you uh, have learned about that and you're putting that learning into practice and that's why we have this resource. Um, likewise, and that's just one example, you know, you, you guys have excellent adult learning people on your team. Um, you have people who, so being able to produce the, the trainings that we do, um, you have people who really understand knowledge management. I remember a colleague years ago uh, who uh, was working in a technical sector saying, if I were the only one working on this, it would not be nearly as good as what it is. And that's how I feel about the work that we do collectively. Mm -hmm. I also really appreciate how we get a lot of FaceTime with you. And I think that's pretty uncommon, at least from my experience in USAID projects. And I think that I'm able to deliver products that are a lot closer to what you want because we do spend a lot of time exchanging ideas and not even working on projects, but just brainstorming and dreaming together about what we might be able to produce. And I think that that it helps our accuracy. Oh, yeah, I agree 100%. Um, it helps accuracy. It helps with the nuance. Um, and it's a lot more efficient than... Um, us giving you a little bit of information and you guys trying to guess what we want and producing stuff that we then say, no, this isn't <laughs> working, go back and do it again. Um, you know, Amy, it reminds me of a time when I was on a panel at a conference with a venture capitalist and he was talking about, um, and actually I guess you could call him a venture philanthropist because he was working in the international development space, obviously from the private sector side and, and looking at investments and he was talking about the importance of co-creation. He didn't call it that, but he was saying the partners that we work with, we spend a lot of time together so that we are honing in on a shared vision for what we want to have happen. And then I know that they are my proxy. They will go forth and carry that vision into the work that they're doing. So that initial sort of almost mind meld in a way but it's it's um it, it's probably more creative than that uh than that term suggests 
is just so important to to be able to inform somebody's perspective so that they can bring it into whatever context they're entering so that that uh, you know in this situation that you're describing we as the donor and the small-ish CLA team we don't have to be in the room all the time because you know what our perspective is because we've put that time in and we keep uh, coming back and sharing new observations you know our context is changing a lot right now and being able to pass on the contextual information and have you guys ask questions that maybe we haven't thought of I think that helps us have a shared frame and and a shared ethos that uh, that you can carry into the work that you do wanted to um, pick up on something that you mentioned just a few minutes ago of the force multiplier and I was envisioning kind of like a set of gears and how um, the important thing to, re to recognize about collaboration is that like no person can do anything alone um, otherwise you're s spinning your own wheels and you're just you know ha you have blinders on and you're really focused and you you're not seeing how much value can be added by working with others and so really um, working on you know fitting all of those pieces together into the bigger goal which is, I think is what we're trying to get at here with the co-creation and um, the collaboration and collaboration internal external in our context or however you want to uh, qualify it um, really helps us identify or surface things that we don't know because we don't know what we don't know and then when we we recognize we're, s we're struggling with something and we bring in others their that perspective helps us see things a little bit differently and then collectively we can work toward that same goal somewhat related I was thinking about the FaceTime comment that you mentioned, Amy, of being able to, when you are collaborating with people and you work, interact with them in person frequently, um, just calling out the obvious that communication is a very, like, key point in collaboration. Um, verbal, nonverbal, like, really interacting with these folks a lot because that helps you get on the same page and then you have what we call, like, that mind meld effect where you anticipate the needs of each other because you are so closely aligned. Ian and Amy, you've both talked about the importance of FaceTime with us, and I think we feel the same with you guys. And Amy, you were mentioning that that is unusual in the USA context, and a big part of that is just the time involved, that the amount of time that it takes to work in this mode is just impossible for some people who are managing multiple activities on top of other work streams that they're involved in. So sometimes it's it's not possible, but where it is possible, I think there's another dimension to the benefit that I wanted to make sure to talk about. And that's the trust that we build in each other through that collaboration process. It enables us to interact at a different level than is usually the norm between USAID and our implementing partners in the sense that over time, we are able to understand where each other is coming from and give each other the benefit of the doubt, which is something that you've heard me talk about before, uh, something that I find quite distressing sometimes um, in, in USAID, which is that often there is a tendency to default to some degree of mistrust of our implementing partners. And I think that's partly because there's a wider frame of uh, perspective and conversation around accountability 
that we d we haven't had the opportunity to really reset within USAID. I think, you know, people dwell in that space of accountability, you know, along a spectrum of behavior, but too often I see AORs and CORs feeling that being an effective and responsible steward of taxpayer funds means bringing a default mistrust to our relationships with our partners. And I think that this is a major impediment to our collective effectiveness, that what we need to do is build greater trust, give each other the benefit of the doubt, understand where each other is coming from, often what seems um, perhaps not a thoughtful approach or uninformed or somehow lacking. It's, it's coming from a place of good intentions and, and just incomplete information. And if, if you understand that through conversation, through candid conversation, then the way that you relate to the partner and the confidence that you develop in each other, that can be hugely important to being able to work together effectively. And in my view, that's essential to being an effective steward of taxpayer dollars, making sure that we facilitate our partner's excellence. In our next segment, we'll talk about six strategies for strategic collaboration. I'll read the definitions and then ask Stacy and Ian to share examples of how USAID staff and partners are using these strategies. As you listen, think about which may fit your collaboration needs. Okay, so the first one is joint ownership. Joint ownership is co-designing and co-implementing where collaborators share relatively equally in the responsibility and buy-in. I think the work of local works in the Economic Growth Bureau, E3 Bureau at USAID, uh, that is an excellent example of joint ownership. Local works jointly owning with a mission, the mission jointly owning with local partners, everybody co-creating together. Excellent. I think another example of, of joint ownership is um, the broad agency announcements where the agency puts out a call for partners to come in and work with USAID to collaboratively design an award. Um, so they gather all the input from all the partners about what makes the most sense. Um, and we actually on USAID Learn have experience with that. We facilitated one of those with USAID Guatemala. And I think they brought in about eight partners to work on that over the course of four or five months. Mm -hmm. So the next collaborative approach is partnership. These are more formal, longer term interactions based on shared goals decision-making, and resource contributions. So this is an area that USAID has been focusing on a lot uh, and will continue to do in the future. So um, one example of where partnerships are strongly emphasized is in the USAID India mission, which has put a lot of emphasis on building partnerships with actors in the private sector, uh, among civil society organizations, and so on. This is also a place where USAID will be putting a lot of emphasis going forward on partnering with non-traditional partners and partnering with developing country governments in a way that transforms our relationship with them, again, into a more facilitative role, really in supporting them on their journey to self-reliance. Another example of a partnership is a learning network. And we uh, at LEARN actually convene a learning network 
I think what you're talking about is the, um, the CLAIM Learning Network. So uh, CLAIM stands for CLA Impact Measurement. And so this is part of our evidence base for CLA Workstream. That's right. um, uh, and the idea is that we need to answer that question about how we measure the contribution that CLA makes at the levels of organizational effectiveness and development results. It's really hard. So what we did was we put out the call for applications and awarded grants to five different organizations um, who are each testing their own approaches to measuring the contribution of CLA in work that they're implementing in the field. Uh, but they're also pooling what they're learning around that shared question of how do we measure that contribution. And so they come together to problem solve with each other, share with each other what they're learning, and they will be working to develop joint learning products that we will use uh, to um, share much more broadly the learning that we've been able to achieve through this network around that question of how do we measure the contribution of collaborating, learning, and adapting. The next collaborative approach is coordination. This is a systematic adjustment to align work for greater outcomes and or less duplication of effort. This is something that we do a lot on our team, coordination efforts. Um, I'm thinking most about how we, you and, you and me, Amy, work closely with our platforms team, in particular, the, the, the guys who manage uh, the Learning Lab website, because so much of our work is, is interconnected based on the content and the features that we want to put out there and then what's actually doable on the back end of things. And so we... Um, have kind of created a, an expanded team of you know the four or five of us that meet regularly to talk about things are going on um, uh, to kind of you know say map out like what we're trying to work on and what what we can do and then what's feasible. That's such a great example to take it in a different direction. A field example that always comes to mind when I think about coordination is uh, from Uganda several years back when they. Uh, developed what they called the district operational plans and this was an effort to address the concerns of local government officials that there were multiple development actors working in their districts and the local government officials didn't really have a way to understand who's doing what in my district and what does this all add up to and how does it uh, relate to the the district development approaches and so on. And so USAID Uganda facilitated a process in several districts in Uganda of establishing district operational plans which were essentially memoranda of understanding and also quarterly convenings of USAID partners at the district level with the local government officials so that everybody could come together and coordinate their efforts. Uh, and one of, the, one of the benefits of that, of course, was for the local government officials who finally could understand sort of the landscape of development efforts, at least that USAID was funding. In some of those districts, the local government officials then took on that role of convening the partners, and also in some districts, other partners beyond those funded by USAID joined that coordinating network. Some other examples of coordination are donor coordination groups, joint IP work planning, interagency working groups, team retreats, and joint site visits. So given that coordination involves systematic adjustment to align work, I can see how our annual big picture reflection retreat really helps us to remember 
what we're aiming to do and then how we can be more strategic about how all of our individual projects and responsibilities um, coalesce to help us achieve those goals. Yeah, and I think, Amy, both that example and uh, what Ian was talking about reminds me that that coordination is really something we need to achieve. It's not something that we can just assume. It actually takes a, a fair amount of thought to bring people together and, and help people exchange the right kind of information so that people can be thinking ahead, like you were saying, Ian, about how will the this piece of what I'm working on, how can it feed into what my colleagues are working mm-hmm. on when those are different mm-hmm. work streams? which again is so important to getting the most out of our efforts and out of the funding that we have. Mm-hmm. Convening is creating opportunities for and facilitating connections among others to enable their further engagement. We at USA Learn host an annual learning event. We call it Moving the Needle. Um, how are we progressing towards uh, sustainable development? Um, and we bring together uh, agency staff from all throughout the agency here in Washington, and then um, we invite a lot of implementing partners. And it's really kind of part working meeting, part showcase, part conversation, just to highlight work that's already being done, to have conversations about where we're headed um, as it relates to development and our objectives, and then kind of get perspectives from both sides of what, how we can better work together going forward excellent example and we are so looking forward to the 2018 moving the needle conference in the field a lot of missions have done some exceptional work around convening stakeholders for consultations as they're developing their five-year country strategies their cdcs country development cooperation strategy those stakeholder consultations are such an important way to accomplish several things at once so one is to get a more robust understanding of the lived experience of people in the countries that we're operating in, and and then to tap the knowledge and expertise of thought leaders and other development actors who we may or may not interact with particularly often, um, again, to get a sense of what others are doing so that we can cast our programs in a way that coordinates well with other programs, and to build those relationships that enable us to influence what others are doing but also take into account um, their own work and their own learning so that they influence our work. Consultations are as-needed interactions on a specific document, process, or activity to get input, feedback, or advice. So USAID Kenya East Africa, when they were developing their strategy several years ago, they conducted, I think, about 25 consultations around the country with lots of different types of stakeholder groups. So these are private sector actors, these are local community organizations, uh, other donors, government counterparts, and so on, to really get a robust understanding of what the key development challenges were, but also opportunities. Information exchange is basic communication to share or elicit information. Okay, so I have an example it, which actually goes a little bit beyond that. It starts with information exchange, um, but then gets into um, much deeper peer learning, and that's the Forestry and Biodiversity Cross-Mission Learning Program. That program uh, was captured in a case that was submitted to the CLA case competition I- in 2015. That's correct. And thank you. Uh, you guys made a video about it, which is on the USA Learning Lab website. But it's such a great example of 
um, peer learning, which as I said, starts with information exchange. This is what we're doing, but then goes beyond that. So Amy, I think it probably combines a couple of those different elements of collaboration. Another example that comes to mind for me is the Adapt Dev Listserv. It was started by Alan Hudson from Global Integrity, and it's a listserv where development practitioners from all over the world share information about the latest in adaptive management. And so we share tools and resources from USA Learning Lab with that group, and then others will send out questions, um, surveys, uh, white papers, briefings, reports, etc., all on this theme. And it really helps us all stay coordinated and current on the latest in adaptive management. Yeah, and KM for Dev is another example where uh, we both learn a lot and share a lot about our work. Okay, so how do we want to wrap up this episode? How are we wrapping up the other episodes? So we haven't wrapped up any of the episodes yet. Oversight. We <laughs> In closing, here's a quick rule of thumb for strategic collaboration. Right people, right time, right way. And if you need help, check out the CLA Toolkit on USA Learning Lab. Stacey and Ian, thank you for that very productive discussion. And I look forward to speaking with you soon about our next topic, which is learning from monitoring and evaluation. Great. Looking forward to it. Me too. Thank you both. Great. There you go. All of the research in this episode comes from our area of work on the evidence base for collaborating, learning, and adapting. To learn more, visit usaidlearninglab.org slash EB, the number four, CLA. The USA Learning Lab podcast is a production of the USA Learn Contract, implemented by Dexas Consulting Group and its partner, RTI International, on behalf of USAID's Office of Learning, Evaluation, and Research in the Bureau for Policy, Planning, and Learning. The opinions in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the United States government. Our music is by Pottington Bear.